Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. everyone this is Denise and our first episode of the season is different than other shows we've done in the past what's different we're talking to a guest about a crime that happened in her family tree a murder we're going to continue featuring serial killers in episodes but on occasion we are going to be featuring your stories so we would love to have you let us know your stories and we'll share them on the air Please note, though, on this episode, we had some technical difficulties with the sound, so it's not the best, and for that, I apologize. First up in this series with guests telling us about their stories and their tree is Julie Dixon Jackson, who has been a guest on the show before from Cut Off Jeans, as she talks about her murderous ancestor. Next week, we will be back with part one covering Jeffrey Dahmer. Have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Well, uh, hi, Zelda. Hey, Denise. I hear we have another very special episode of Murderous Roots today. Yes, and, and you know, we're changing things up over here. We're going to add a whole different thing. So if for those who've been listening, you know, we get into the family trees of killers. And for those who are new to us, this is a mini-sode version where we're going to discuss people who have killers in their family trees. So it kind of reverses it. So if we are hoping that, you know, if you're listening, if you have a story you want to share with us, let us know. We might have you on the show or we might read your story for the masses. You know, it's not like we have huge masses, but the hundred people who listen to us, that'd be awesome. So (laughs) today we have, again, the incomparable Julie Dixon Jackson from Cutoff Jeans. And she says she has a murder in her tree. Oh, I have more than one, but this is this, I'm going to focus on this one because it has the most written about, about it. And it's in on my direct line too. So I, it's not even, yeah. Okay. So are you guys ready? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us all about the murder. I'm going to tell you all about it. So I, I, if you don't know me, I was born in Australia. So uh, most of my history comes from Australia and England before that, usually some, some Scotland, some Norway, weirdly enough. I don't know why that's that weird. Blonde hair. <laughs> that's a whole other, uh, not real. I anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no natural blondes in my family. Um, so this happened in Australia in a town of Bendigo during the height of the Australian gold rush. My When was that, my, the Australian gold rush? The Australian gold rush is about the same time as the American gold rush. It was from about 1851 to 18, uh, late 1860s. Okay. I think. So this was right slap bang in the middle of it. So my second great grandmother, Martha Cornwell, Cornwell Mm -hmm. was her maiden name. She was born in 1832 in Cambridge, England and arrived in Australia in 1853 with her younger sister, uh, Liza. 
1856, she married Charles Fisher, my second great grandfather, who was born in Yorkshire in 1833. And he arrived in Australia. Oh, yes, he arrived uh, with his sister-in-law, Sarah uh, Jane Fisher, who was his brother's wife. I don't know. That doesn't really matter. And then they got married in 1856 in Sandhurst, which is a suburb of Bendigo, or actually, I think may have been what Bendigo was called at the time. I so I have a question for you. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not looking at you. So why were they kicked out of England? They weren't why? kicked out. They, <laughs> they, they weren't kicked out. They, most people at that time, Australia was a relatively new country and a lot of people went to Australia for uh, usually for the gold rush around that time, actually, to find their fortune. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So they were living in Bendigo, and Martha, my second great grandmother, she had a brother named Edward Cornwell, and he was there for the gold rush, and he was living on the gold fields, which oh, wow. is where most people of the poorer people were living in tents mm-hmm. on the gold fields. Wow. Um, and they were, they lived at a place called Long Gully and a part of it was called Specimen Hill. So I am going to read you from, let me see, read from the, oh, there's no date on it, but it's from, uh, I believe it is from March 28th. 1861, the local newspaper there, which was the Bendigo Advertiser. And this article is entitled The Long Gully Murder. I'm intrigued. Yeah. (laughs) So this is what is written. And if you have questions during it, a lot of the language is very um, interesting. Uh, And so if you need clarification, I can explain it to you. Okay. Okay, the inquiry into the cause of death of Sarah Ann Cornwell was held yesterday at the Union Hotel. Okay, that was his sister-in-law? That was my, that was, uh, that was Martha, my second great-grandmother's sister-in-law. Okay, that's right. Okay. Okay. And it was held at the, they, so they held an inquiry at the Union Hotel. So there obviously wasn't a courthouse mm-hmm. in Bendigo at the time, or in, this was held at uh, Specimen Hill, Long Gully, before Dr. Roach, the district coroner, Martha Fisher, second great-grandmother, the wife of Charles Fisher, traveler for Elliot and Fawns at Kangaroo Flat. Uh, side note, my biological half-brother lives in Kangaroo Flat to this day. And yes, it's called kangaroo flat, believe it or not. Of course it is. Yeah. (laughs) Deposed that deceased was married to her brother. They had two two children, one of whom about seven years of age was alive. The other one had died at two years old. Um, Deceased and her husband had not been living happily together for some time in consequence of the husband being jealous of a man who boarded with them in their tent. That was a side note for me. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That's close quarters. Now tents then were, uh, they were a cloth tent, Mm -hmm. um, but they had hard wooden doors. Okay. So it was, it was not like a a camping tent with a zipper. They didn't have zippers then anyway. (laughs) Okay. For the last two months, the deceased husband had been working at Terengower on Saturday night last which was uh, March 23rd, 1861. Uh, About seven o'clock, Witness's brother, Edward, called at her husband's residence in Kangaroo Flat and had tea with them. So the brother had visited their house 
their home. Oh, so I'm sorry. The last on Saturday night last about seven. Oh, was that the same night? I'm just seeing now. I'm just noticing something. It sounds like he visited them with them that very night. Oh, wow. That it happened. During the time he remained there, he asked witness Martha if she knew that deceased was going to a ball. So a dance, basically, at the local okay. hotel. She told him she had on her previous Monday, but had heard nothing of it, meaning she had seen her, seen the deceased. After remaining an hour, he left to go home. He was quite sober then. I don't know if that means sober, not drunk, or serious. Mm-hmm. About five weeks since, her brother told her that on the previous night from 8 to 11 o'clock, he had watched under the window of his tent and had seen the man he was jealous of sitting inside with his wife. That at 11 o'clock, when the light was put out and on his trying both the front and back doors, so there were two doors on said tent, uh, he found them both locked. He then got in through one window and saw the man jump out of another with nothing but his shirt on. He told the witness they had words together on that occasion, but they made it up again. Witness was intimate with the, de- the deceased, and as far as she knew of her, she was a respectable, industrious woman. Deceased was a native of Cambridge and about 27 years of age. Sarah wow. Ann Stokes, this is another person, the, the, uh, Sarah Ann Cornwell was the victim, the sister-in-law, Sarah Ann, another Sarah Ann Stokes was another witness. The wife of minor residing in Specimen Hill, Long Gully had known the deceased and her husband for the last three or four years. About nine o'clock on last Saturday evening, the deceased was the witness at a neighbor's tent. She went home about nine o'clock for the purpose of putting her child to bed. She returned in about an hour and that her husband had come and asked her where she had been. When she told him she had been at Mrs. Rose's assisting to making some mourning for a child that had died. Children died regularly on the goldfields. And that he said it was a lie and accused her of having been to Bendigo. And that he had also accused her of being one night during that week at a ball at the Cape Clear Hotel. Witness laughed at her. Witness being Sarah Ann Stokes left at the deceased and told her she was very foolish to try to prove anything to such a jealous minded man and that she deserved all she got for not leaving him. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. When witness saw her again, she was sitting on the bed between Worsley, who is a uh, somebody who comes up later uh, and a woman who was a neighbor. She was bleeding profusely from the head. From witnesses knowledge of deceased, she considered her a respectable woman. So there's two people now who considered her a respectable woman. The iron bar produced she found on the floor near the deceased's body. William Worsley, that is who was sitting on the bed, uh, a minor residing in Specimen Hill, had known deceased and her husband for the last nine months. Himself and his mate. Now, whenever it's a mate, they're talking friend. Yeah. That's an Australianism. <laughs> I knew that one. Very good. Uh, Himself and his mate named Dearness had been boarding there from last January. Deceased and her husband then appeared to live comfortable together. Witness had his tent in which his mate also stopped about 30 30 yards from deceased's place. Witness had supper there on Saturday night about seven o'clock when he left and went to Cape Clear Hotel. So he went to the Cape Clear Hotel. About a quarter of an hour afterwards, he returned to the deceased's tent, deceased being at that time, out. He laid down on the sofa. I don't know why he went to her tent. 
to lay down on the sofa. He laid down on the sofa. There's a sofa in a tent, by the way. Um, I was going to say, this sounds like a very fancy tent. It's, it sounds like a very fancy tent. Um, afterwards, he returned to the cease tents. Uh, he laid down on the sofa and fell asleep and was awoke by his mate, friend, coming in with the deceased's little boy. So they had a six-year-old or a seven-year-old living in the tent with them. And the friend had the little boy witness then got up and went to the Cape clear hotel. He went to his own tent about 11 o'clock and shortly afterwards, his mate came home and also went to bed shortly after 11 o'clock. They heard a woman scream and on his mate dearness asking what it was witness said he thought it was Mrs. Cornwell, the deceased witness asked him to go and see if it was his mate shortly afterwards returned and told him he had gone to Cornwell's tent and that in answer to his inquiry as to what was the matter Cornwell that it was his wife in her old fits shortly afterwards they heard a scream again when witness told dearness to go out and if he heard anything to call witness after a hung going out his mate called him and having joined him outside they went to the window of Cornwell's tent the witness called out to him and asked what's the matter Cornwell answered there was nothing it was only his wife in one of her old fits and she would be right by the morning oh my god witness oh, asked Cornwell why he did not get a light and whether he should <clears throat> not fetch Mrs. Clements one of his neighbors to his assistance Cornwell muttered something about Mrs. Clements and him not being friends and that he would rather have a Mrs. West to come him to come to him witnesses mate then went to Mrs. Clements tent and came back and said she was not home but that her husband was at this time, Cornwell said from inside the tent that there was no occasion to bring Mrs. Clements, as his mate was going away for the purpose of bringing Mrs. Clements. Cornwell came out with only his shirt and trousers on and went in the direction taken by Dearness, as if witness supposed, for the purpose of bringing him back. He had not seen him since. After he went away, witness went into the tent, but not getting any answer when he called out for Mrs. Cornwell and heard her moaning. He struck a light and holding the candle at the door of the bedroom, saw her lying on the ground covered with blood. The little boy was sitting up in his bed. Oh, <gasps> oh my God. Mm -hmm. Witness ran out of the tent and shouted out, you murdering villain, where have you gone to? He got no answer and... His mate returning at this time told him that Cornwell had killed the poor woman. Witness, after sending Dearness for the assistance of the neighbors, took the deceased up in his arms and got a stick to defend himself until the assistance came. Witness asked the deceased if she knew him and what her husband struck her with, but she could not answer and only exclaimed, oh dear, oh dear. When Cornwell spoke to Witness from inside of the tent, he was quite rational and sober. Archibald Dearness, a minor living with, that was the mate of the witness, gave evidence corroborating, corroborative of that given by him. Now, it just repeats basically him saying everything yeah. that his friend had said. Wow. The remainder of the witness's evidence in reference to what took place there was similar to that given by the witness Worsley. Charles Maurice, medical practitioner in Sandhurst, deposed that about three o'clock on last Sunday morning, he went to see the deceased, whom he found lying on the floor of the tent. She was bleeding from the head. He had her removed into bed, and on examining her, he ascertained she received severe wounds to the head and face. The skull was fractured. Uh. There were also two contused wounds, one on each arm near the wrist. The usual restoratives were applied, but the deceased gradually sank and died two hours after his arrival. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Yeah. There's stuff that I'm skipping because it's all very repetitive. Yeah. Um, so that was now keep in mind that this was an inquiry 
held at this hotel. My second great grandparents were both there. They both identified the body of their sister-in-law who was, that was in the room. So that's how an inquiry was, or an inquest was held. They would have the body of in the room with the witnesses and uh, whoever was there for the inquest, I guess. I know it's, it's horrifying. Yeah. After uh, this being the whole of evidence, the coroner summed up briefly to the jury who asked, about a quarter of an hour's consultation returned a verdict that the deceased Sarah Ann Cornwell came by her death on the 24th of March, 1861 at Specimen Hill, Long Gully, from the effects of severe injuries received on her head on the 23rd of March, uh, which said injuries were inflicted by the hands of one Edward Cornwell, my second grand uncle. Um, we therefore consider that said Edward Cornwell guilty of the willful mur- murder of the said Sarah Ann Cornwell. Jeez. Um, so that was the end of that and the end of that article. What it doesn't mention is that Edward Cornwell had still not been apprehended. Oh, yeah. So he's still out there somewhere when this is printed. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, keeping in mind that the only way that people were in touch back then was through the telegraph. Right. I guess. Um, so for a few days, how many days would it have been? They were looking for the guy. So here's what happens then. The event that this is about occurred on April 1st or 2nd. So he'd been gone for like a week. Okay. Okay. So this is from the Bendigo Advertiser. Uh, On Saturday, Dr. Roach, district coroner, held an inquest once again with the body. Uh, On the body of Edward Cornwell, the murderer of his wife at Specimen Hill, Long Gully on Saturday night. 23rd of March. Charles Holding, a farmer residing at Lockwood, deposed that on last Thursday morning, about eight o'clock, he went into a paddock for his bullock and noticed a white blanket banging on the paddock fence. He went up to it and saw the deceased standing by the side of a small tree with his head bent down. And after looking at him for some time and not observing him move, he told a man who came up on horseback of the circumstance. Both of them went up to where he was and found the deceased was suspended to the fork of the tree by a red and white handkerchief. On going up close to him, they saw he was dead. He could not have been dead long as the body was quite warm. They gave information of the circumstances to the police. Uh, Constable from the Lockwood police station came by. He cut him down, but he was quite dead. The deceased was suspended by a hempen cord, such as hay is tied with round, which were placed pieces of cotton print handkerchief, which was fastened to the cord by the means of pieces of leather boot lace. The fork of the tree to which the deceased was suspended was about six feet from the ground. Charles Fisher, my second great grandfather, the brother-in-law of the deceased identified the body as that of Edward Cornwell against a verdict of willful murder was returned by a coroner's jury on Tuesday last. Deceased was about 32 years of age and of Cambridge, England. The jury brought in a verdict to the effect that the deceased came by his death from suffocation, the result of hanging, they being the opinion that the deceased committed suicide. We have been informed of the following particulars of Cornwell's proceedings between Saturday evening that Lye murdered his wife and idle time he was found dead in the paddock. It appears that he had been working at Parkins Reef. So he went work somewhere um, for Mr. Pellet. And about nine o'clock on Sunday evening, following the murder, Mr. Pellet Jr. and some of the bricklayers came up to their tent, which is about three quarters of a mile from the township. And as they did, they saw a man running away. 
Shortly after, afterwards, Cornwell came running up in a stealthy manner to the tent, having nothing but a pair of trousers and a shirt on. He asked them if they had heard anything, and on some of them saying they had not, Cornwell said, I think I have killed my wife. Uh-huh. He remained with the man in the tent, the men in the tent for some time and had something to eat, during which time he appeared in a state of great anxiety, always looking at the door as if he expected somebody after him. I mean, what were these guys in the tent thinking? He just <laughs> sitting there to murdering his wife. And they're like, oh, he, he looks they're like, hey, I'm- yeah, here, have a sandwich. I, I, it's yeah, it's very strange to me. Was he, he drunk? Were they like, oh, the dude's just maybe drunk. they were all drunk. That wouldn't be surprising. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's crazy. I know. Uh, he told them that he got home on Saturday night. He found his wife away from home, that when she came in, she began to abuse him and said he had only come to annoy her and he had no business there. That after some angry words had occurred between them about her going to a ball, it's all about this ball. His wife got very excited and laid hold of him by the hair of the head that she took up the iron. She took up the iron bar, but did not strike him with it. They shortly afterwards renewed the quarrel and at last, lie took up the iron bar and struck her about the head with it and that he believed he had killed her he stated that when worsley and his mate came to the door attracted by his wife's cries he had made his escape as stated by the worsley inquest in the direction of break day gully where he picked up an old cap and he made his way through the bush avoiding the road until he came to some place that i can't pronounce um where he left somebody's tent. He did the same, uh, but he did the same that night. He took away some old clothes that he had belonging to him and an old blanket telling them as he went away that he would not be taken alive. It appears that on the following morning, the police arrived at Taryn Gower in pursuit of him and remained there until about nine o'clock the same night. And that as if the murderer had been watching their movements, they had not been gone more than an hour, a quarter of an hour. Then he went to Pellet's tent and asked if they had heard anything when they told him to clear out as the police were after him. So they basically protected him. (laughs) Yeah. Strange as it may seem without making any effort to detain him. This was the last they saw of the murderer alive. And it is probable that he had been wandering about the ranges until, as it is stated, he saw the funeral of his wife on Wednesday, which he committed the act of self-destruction. And that is the story of Edward Cornwell. And he was the brother of Martha. He was the brother of my second great grandmother, Martha, uh, Martha Cornwell, Cornwell Fisher. Fisher. Correct. What um, was this a story it? that was like passed down to you, or did you have no? To nobody in the family it? knew this story until I found it. Oh my gosh! Because wow. this is my biological family that I just found three years ago. Okay. And so I've been, you know, on the hunt for any kind of information and this came up and I Mm. was losing my mind, especially considering my father died in Kangaroo Flat. One of my brothers lives in his house still and that they're from that area. Um, Yeah, it blows my mind. There's one other thing that I find interesting and I have tried and tried and tried to figure out what happened, but nobody knows what happened to the little boy. I was just about to ask you what happened to him. I I assumed that he would was probably taken in by Martha and and by my second great grandmother mm-hmm. and raised with them. I can find no evidence of that. And in fact, um, so his name was 
uh, William John Cornwell. And he was, and for a while, I thought I had figured it out because Martha and Charles had a son named William John Fisher. Oh, okay. However, William John Fisher was born in 1865, four years after the murder. Oh, yeah, that couldn't be. And he died in 1895. It sounds like they named him after. It does, although William John is pretty common, but yes. but But I can find no record of whatever happened to poor little William John Cornwell. I wish I've tried so many times. And of course I know more than anybody about the family. So nobody's going to be able to help me um, with that. Let me see. Hold on. I'm so just from a quick Google search, I see the name William John Cornwell is very popular in Australia. Oh, is it? It seems to be, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Cornwell seems to be a pretty common name. (laughs) Who knew? Yeah, and apparently someone by the name of William John Cornwell just passed away on August, I'm sorry, April 29th, 2017. Yes, I think I probably saw that because I was, uh, today this renewed my curiosity about him as I was researching this. And, have you uh, tried to find him via DNA? Um, yes, I have several Cornwells. In fact, on the Cornwell line, I have confirmed a lot of things. Good on you. There is a got adopted or something. Yeah, maybe, but- I, oh, William John. Yeah. He was born in 1855 in Ballarat. Mm -hmm. I have his birth index and his birth um, certificate, but nothing else beyond that, unless, yeah, somebody changed his name. Um, But none of my uh, second great grandparents' kids were born, born in 1855 that are, you know, listed. Mm -hmm. What was interesting is so Martha and Edward actually had one, two, three, four, five, six siblings um, there. And most of them ended up in Australia at some point, Martha and her younger sister, Eliza went to Australia at the same time they traveled together mm-hmm. and Eliza got married shortly after that. And then one of the uh, uh, two of the other brothers, I think ended up in Australia And I got on this whole research thing about George, the brother that was born in 1825. And the more I found out about him or about the George Cornwell that I was researching, I was sure it wasn't the right George Cornwell because this guy ended up being quite wealthy and successful and the Cornwells were not a rich family. So I was like, I put it in as like, Mm, this is a hypothesis. I, this is unverified. I don't know. He right. married a woman named Janina Redpath and they had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven children. Uh, the oldest, which was born in England and then the rest in Australia. I recently noticed a DNA match on that line and it's only nine centimorgans. Her name is Kate. Oh. Mm-hmm. And, but it's from quite a long time ago. So, but on her bare bones tree, it looks like her grandfather was somebody named Daryl Cornwell. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I went back into my tree of this, of uh, the George Cornwell that mm-hmm. I've been researching, thinking it could be the same one. So I researched all of George Cornwell and Jemima, J- Jemima Ridpath's children. And one of them had a grandson named Daryl. So mm-hmm. turns out, 
that it's either a crazy coincidence that I have a DNA match to somebody who had a George Cornwell as a yeah. as a second great grandfather or third great grandfather in her case and Jemima Ridpath that I had in my tree. So I'm thinking maybe because Jemima Ridpath was uh, from a very well off London family. So I'm thinking maybe George just uh, married up. And or maybe George is connected further back because nine centimorgans for fourth third fourth cousins um no she would be let me see fifth to eighth oh right she well eighth i mean here's the thing the going that far back um it, it can be you can okay so i have a cousin and we share third great grandparents and we match at 50 something right or third great grandmother but i have others that we match that we have relatives from that exact same era that are much lower. Yeah, so once you get further away, the variation is much broader. Well, I was thinking, cause you were saying like third or grandpa, you know, great grandparents. I was thinking, yeah. Was well, let me, if I go, um, hold on. I'll look at the Fisher price tree. Maybe they're in that. The I Fisher have two price trees. Tree, I love that. Yeah. That's my name. Fisher price. My mother's price. My father's Fisher. I'm Fisher that. price. Come on. Yeah. Make this stuff up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but with George, also another thing with George that I didn't like, because I I'm like, oh, George Cornwell went to Australia, too, if that is the same George Cornwell. But I had no proof that the George Cornwell I was looking for was that George Mm -hmm. Cornwell until I found Eliza Cornwell, the younger sister uh, I have her marriage certificate and the witnesses are Martha Cornwell or Martha Fisher, my second grandmother and George Cornwell. Mm. So he was in Australia and that George Cornwell was in Australia by that time as well. So I think it's the same George. I think you're right. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a very strong mm-hmm. hypothesis. Yeah, I think so too. So another thing to think about is in 1861, this was not the only loss that this family had. So Eliza Cornwell, who married William Johnson, she died in September of 1861. Oh, my. And she had three children. The Edward Cornwell and the wife he murdered had another son who died in 1861 named Charles. Oh, wow. Um, So he had just, I don't, do I have a death for him? No, it says about 1861, but they definitely had lost a child. Uh, that same year as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So there had been a death. There had been the sister, the, the sister died, the baby died. Then he killed his wife and he and his wife died. Wow. So yeah, there was a, a lot. lot. Yeah. It was a rough time out on the gold fields, you know? Yeah. So that is where I am with the Cornwells. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> that was fascinating and terrible terrible all at the same time isn't it amazing the like how it how descriptive it all is and mm-hmm. it, it really gives you a sense of what it was like they were um, really descriptive back then in newspapers mm-hmm. now you'd have mm-hmm. people complaining right right <laughs> exactly well they didn't really care about being like neutral back then 
it was all either. about, yeah. you know, yellow yeah. journalism, selling the story, you know. Exactly. Exactly. But, yes. There's so many articles from, especially that the Bendigo advertiser, it was the Wild West in Bendigo during yeah. that time. I had another uh, on both sides of my family lived in Bendigo at that wow. time. And I had a German great, great grandfather who ran um, an oompa pub <laughs> <laughs> there. And he also um, had gardens, uh, had like, uh, he, he grew like watermelons and he was uh, at one point, he was a victualler and he was very interesting, but there's an article about him his watermelons had been missing. Like he would wake up in the morning and melons would be gone from his garden. Oh no. And so he stayed up one night with a gun to watch, to see what was happening to his watermelons. And they, oh uh, it was a very common. There were a lot of Chinese uh, on the gold fields as well. Mm-hmm. And they called them Chinamen. And they also called them, what was the other word? Oh, that's okay. We no, no but, but it's a slur. A, yeah, no, it, no. They call them celestials. Uh, I've heard that. Yeah. Yes. You I may have heard it on the I podcast. Yeah, <laughs> you may have heard on the podcast. I told this story recently. He had like been out there on the porch. The guy climbs the fence. He has the melon. He's about to climb the fence. And he pulls out his pod. gun and shoots him in the butt with it. And, oh my God. and the guy dropped the melon and got over the fence, but it is, it reads like a, a cartoon. Yeah. It's amazing the way they describe wow. this, but yeah, yeah. He's another relative of mine that was written about a lot because he was actually very well known in the area. This, this but, is why um, I like to read from the newspaper articles sometimes because they're so, so colorful. They're so, I know. they fill in so much wow. detail. It's like, I don't even need to tell you my, I, yeah takes more words for me to explain than just to read the article. <laughs> right. Right. Oh yeah. My goodness. So that's, uh, that's the story of, um, the Cornwells and that's not even there's, I have two others, but I'll tell you some other time. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. We'll have you back at some point. To All do right. that. Okay. You, you'll just become a regular. Yeah. 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 I'm like an, um, I'm a, a, the, a, um, what do you call it? A, uh, you have a, a regular guest spot. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> whatever a featured player oh a featured yeah. player I like that <laughs> yeah I mean you're, right. you're you're from the um, musical theater and stuff right yeah I am guest starring yes yeah. there you go <laughs> <laughs> okay so I had to look this up because I've never heard oh. of Chinese people called celestials uh-huh but apparently and you probably know this I did not but the China was called the celestial empire because yes the, um, the leaders were considered the sons of heaven, the emperors. Right. And so, so that's they, why I don't see, see it as a slur. Yeah. That doesn't yeah, that's seem much like better that's than the nicknames they had over here in the U S. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, Which that's actually say. kind of, that's actually kind of pretty. And it turns out apparently it's coming back into use among Chinese internet users. Oh, oh which interesting. Is interesting. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay. And apparently the names of China are actually like wide, widely varied as one might imagine is that it's a big country, but Cathay now Cathay I've seen in old books, oh, yeah. but like I Cathay Pacific was, was an airline. Yeah. Cathay yeah, Pacific yeah. used to be an airline. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah well, that yeah, used yeah. to be a name for China. And I always thought it was like some province of India or something. So huh. I am learning all kinds of things today. Besides the fact your relatives were murderers. i'm so proud should should we get into your family sometimes zelda oh god no yeah zelda (laughs) 
Well, sure see, this DNA? is why I'd I will not do my it. DNA. This is why she no won't. Doubt. I know. <laughs> I have no doubt I will thereby be ratting out my relatives somehow. But I think oh, that's fun. Like we've been waiting for the right DNA to come across the wire. Oh, <laughs> you, know? you don't have to check the whole thing. I, although I think it's a good positive thing to do if you upload it to GenMatch and check it for law enforcement. Because then you might help identify a body that hasn't been identified. It's more than mm -hmm. just arresting people. I mean, you're more, it's more likely you have a distant relative that's like, you know. Yeah, you would, I would think. But I figure, you know, if I find out that an uncle in my world or and so something was involved in a crime, I, I want to know. You know. <laughs> I so maybe and when the ones I'm old, I think might have been, they're dead. So. Died off. <laughs> you know yeah but here's the thing i mean these are all things that you can uncover but you don't have to tell anybody mm. until after they're gone <laughs> okay because i have to tell you my grandfather on my mother's side um he was into some really sketchy shit sure. <laughs> so i am just like it would not really surprise me here's <laughs> here's something that as genealogists we've learned uh -huh. every single family has sketchy shit Oh, yeah. every <laughs> single one people always and we need to embrace that because mm -hmm. they are not us <laughs> yeah. but it it's they're always really good stories and lessons look at them as lessons exactly yeah <laughs> exactly Besides, well i mean he never went fun. to jail so he had something going on right see <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no and it, by the way, the other day I was talking to my dad and I go, you know, because I've gotten really into the genetic genealogy, I'm, I keep waiting to see that I have a sibling that's going to pop up somewhere because you used to be in the Navy and he laughed mm. so hard. A little too hard? No, actually, <laughs> it, it, I was on the phone with my mom at the same time. He goes, that's not going to happen. He, I go, he goes, trust me, it's not going to happen. I'm like, okay, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised. And my mom goes, it better not happen. <laughs> and I Were go, they already married? No. And that's why oh, well, then she can get over it. <laughs> he joined the Navy a year before he met you, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. Okay. That's so funny. <laughs> this reminds me of the story of my father now. So my father is as straight edge as they come. Okay. I mean, not, I'm not just saying that as his daughter, he was a monk for a while before he met my mom. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. You know, sure. he's like very, <laughs> and he is a prude. If I've ever seen a guy who's a prude, this my dad was too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was, of course, very full of feminism during college and I was home on a break and I was going on about how basically all men have sexually harassed women at some point. And my father was incensed, incensed. And he's like, excuse me, young lady, the only woman I've ever sexually harassed was your mother. Laughing so out of the mouths of babes. My mom's like right there. She looks over at me. She's like, yeah. I love that. Wow. It's so impossibly cute. And now my dad's like 87. So that's adorable. Probably remind him about this conversation. He'd probably be <laughs> Can I include yeah. it? That's the question. Oh, yeah, feel free. Okay. Yay. No, All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Julie, again. You're welcome. Yeah, Julie, you're listening to my crazy story. <laughs> you are so much fun to have on here. I do hope you come on again sometime. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for having me, guys. You're welcome. And you know, everybody. You, we'd love to have your story on the show as well. So just hit us up and we will arrange that. Have a great this day, so everyone. Again. The truth is in your genes. It's true. And come back That's to Murder's Roots, where murder and family meet. 
If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.